Hey, peace be with you. Hey, it's a joy to be here. I'm going to raise this up a little bit just because, um, well, I'm a little taller than that. Um, as long as it doesn't fall. As Brandon said, my name is Joseph Turner. I am the founding pastor of Sojourn Heights. And I just want to start by saying that it is a tremendous joy and an outrageous honor to be here on this particular day with this particular group of people. Um, and to see this room filled with so many beautiful faces of diverse backgrounds and ethnicities and um, realities and stories, because as Brandon said, uh, 10 years ago, or I mean five years ago, uh, we started here in this room. And uh, I want to be honest, all this beautiful staging wasn't here at that time. Did you catch that? Okay, I wasn't being serious. But um. But no, we started here in this room, and I can still remember, I try not to reminisce too much because I'm not up here to reminisce, I'm up here to preach, but um, I remember that day, October 10th, 2010, literally like it was yesterday. Um, I remember we, my wife and I, we lived over in the North Hill section of the Heights, and, and I remember just waking up that morning with an overwhelming sense of anticipation and joy of what God might do, both in the gathering that we started that Sunday evening, and then by His grace, through His Spirit, for many, many more Sundays to come, and this Sunday, of course, being in that legacy of, of just what God has done week after week in and through the people of Sojourn here in the Heights. And, and uh, it, it's, it's incredible. It really is incredible to think about all that God has done, how He has shown Himself, how He has revealed His glory and His grace in really powerful ways in and through this community um, I remember before we even launched, we met down in the basement. So um, you'll, for those of you that have actually been down in the basement, you'll actually know that it was the Holy Spirit of God that planted this church because there's no other way that a church could have gathered the kind of momentum that we did gathering in that basement. But we did. Uh, God was gracious to us. He was merciful to us. And I remember gathering in that basement with just kind of uh, just this random assortment of people that would come and visit every Sunday. Um, some people we would see only once and I understood why. Um, some people we would see a few times. Some people stuck around, though, from the time that we were literally just gathering in our living room and then moving to that dirty, dingy basement down there um, to launching in this facility. Um, people stayed. And so as much as I would like to sit up here and, and, and just revel in, you know, how God used um, this, this people for his glory, um, and, and take all my time to do that, I want to ask that if you were here, you were part of Sojourn's launch, and you kept coming around, would you please stand up? Would you please stand up? You were part of Sojourn's launch, and you kept coming around. <laughs> Stay standing. Stay standing, stay standing, stay standing, stay standing. When we set out, we said, by God's grace, this place would grow and multiply to be a blessing of God to this neighborhood and to this city. We said we would plant not a church, but churches. Soak it up. Look at what God has done through your faithfulness. You stayed. Even whenever I couldn't, you guys stayed. And to me, that's a tremendous, tremendous mark of God's grace and providence for this community. So soak it up. Enjoy today, friends. And all of you that have joined since, um, I pray that you would continue to enjoy uh, the spiritual legacy and heritage of this church. Although it's still young, um, look at what God has done in five years. Can't imagine what he'll continue to do five, 10, 15 years from now how his glory will be revealed in this place. So thank you guys. Thank you. <clears throat> it takes a lot to walk with a church plant through all of the stages of immaturity. Um, it takes a lot to walk with an immature church planter as well. So I, I want to thank you for being patient and gracious with me as well. Um, today I've been asked to talk about holiness and mission and uh, I found it kind of ironic that this was the, the topic that was assigned to me because when we came down here, we, we really emphasized mission. Um, I mean, 
I emphasize mission so much, so it, it, it made many of you angry with me because you thought that I was kind of uh, a missional dictator. And, and in reality, I was, okay, because I didn't know any better. That's all I knew. But it was just mission, 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 mission. Move into the heights, move into the heights, sell all your belongings, pay an outrageous amount of, of money for a mortgage, you know, when you could just live five blocks north and pay half that. Like, it was, right, we did all that. So you know, it was just mission, 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 mission. But one of the things that we didn't stress enough, I don't think, and if there is one topic that I feel like we could have emphasized more, it was holiness and how holiness actually um, intersects and really is, is the fuel for good Christian mission. Um, we talked a lot about mission in regards to the places that we go or the things that we do or the, the people that we meet and how we engage them, and, and we really didn't talk enough about how mission is really um, at the heart of it us living out of our God-given identity as missionaries. It's who we are. It's not so much what we do. And holiness is, is the thing that is to characterize a missionary of God. And so I'm excited to actually preach on this because it's something that I feel like I didn't get a chance to. Um, and it's something that I feel like of the many mistakes we made as a church plant and of the many mistakes that I personally made and sins that I committed as a church planter, um, this is something that I'm, I'm glad to, to preach on. And so if we could, just because my heart is going crazy, um, and I want to be, uh, probably my insecurity is going to lead me to do this, otherwise I wouldn't. Um, my notes crashed this morning, literally right as I was downstairs thinking that I was, my computer just froze, shut off, decided not to turn back on. And so these are my sermon notes this morning. And for the Sojourn preaching team that I know now diligently manuscripts every word of their sermon, that might make you a bit nervous. Take heart. It makes me nervous too. Um, but some of you have been around. You know this is not the first time to happen to me in this church. The first time it happened, I preached a sermon, and it was like, yes, nailed it. No notes, nailed it. Then I was like, I'll try that again. Never do it again, right? Like, just learn that mistake. And so here's, this was not intentional. Um, so I, I'm going to need extra prayer that God would just settle my heart, and um, uh, I'm going to pray that you guys would be gracious to me as well. This may not be the most coherent sermon you've ever heard, but I do pray that it's at least from the heart and inspired by the Holy Spirit. So let's pray again. Father, we come before your throne of grace, and we humble ourselves before you. Lord, you are good. You are great. You are holy. God, we are none of those things left to ourselves, God. We are wicked, we are feeble, we are weak, we are selfish. And so, Lord, we need you by your Spirit to come to intercede in this room for us, to make sense of your words for us, to interpret your scriptures for us, to make them come alive in our hearts and our minds. Lord, that we might not just hear your word, but we might be able to apply and obey it as well. Father, we come before you dependent, broken, in desperate need of your grace and your spirit to be at work in this room. God, please guide my words. Please guide um, our time here. Uh, I would be able to focus and stay on task. And Lord, most importantly, that the saints here at Sojourn would be edified. God, that you would be glorified. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Okay, so my topic, again, is holiness and mission. From what I understand, you guys have been in a sermon series talking about holiness. And in week one, uh, Pastor Drew, he, he walked you through the, what, is, what, is, what is holiness? What is God's holiness? And, and it was defined as this, that, that holiness is essentially God's unrivaled otherness. That it is him being completely other, completely different, completely out of the bounds of the, of the creation that he has made, of which we are a part, that it is his unrivaled uh, otherness. And that when we talk about holiness, we can only talk about it in terms of relating to God's holiness. And because we are fallen, we are sinful, we are not holy, um, in, our, in our flesh, the, the only way that we could be made holy is if holiness comes from with, outside of us, into us. And that is the work of Christ. That's what he has applied to us on the cross through the Holy Spirit, that by our relationship with God, though we are not holy, we can be made holy. And then last week, Paul 
walked you through what does it look like really to struggle with and wrestle, wrestle with personal holiness. And so today I'm going to be talking about how holiness really should be the, the fuel for Christian mission. And if you're not a Christian here and you're already confused by all of the language that we're using, or if you can kind of pick up on some of the language, you're like, holiness, that sounds like a very Christian topic. Um, I'm sure you're glad that this is the Sunday you chose to come because here we are talking about holiness. And I don't know about you, but whenever I think about holiness, um, I see, I, I became a Christian in the late 90s. And so there's this song that comes to mind. Holiness, holiness. Anybody else? No? You don't know? There we go. Come on. Take my life. Right. Um, so I think about holiness in terms of like, it, honestly, the first thing that comes to mind, I'm just like, culturally, when I think about holiness, I think about cheesy Christian worship songs. Um, I think about uh, people wearing long skirts with buns in their hair. I think about all different kinds of things whenever I think about holiness. I don't necessarily think about mission. Um, or I'll think about, my, you know, God's call in our lives to, to just really pursue holiness, pursue righteousness, but I, I don't automatically connect the two, that holiness and, uh, holiness and mission are really interrelated, that they can't be separated from one another, as we'll see. Um, but before we get really kind of into the what and the how of holiness and mission, I want to first exhort you from Hebrews 12 in the why. So I know we started with John 17. We're going to be going back to John 17, so you can hold your finger in your Bible there. But I want to start in Hebrews 12, and I want to talk about the why behind the what. Because we're going to be talking about how, what holiness is, what mission is, a little bit more. Um, but I want to talk about why we're, why we're going to be um, addressing this subject at all this morning. So Hebrews chapter 12, we'll read beginning in verse 1, we'll go down to verse uh, 14. In Hebrews, you have the author of the Hebrews who's really just, throughout the book, he's comparing and contrasting the Old Covenant, which we find in the Old Testament of our Bible. He's contrasting it with the New Covenant, which we find in the New Testament of our Bible. He's, he's really, he's writing to Hebrew Christians, which are Jews, and he's really trying to, trying to encourage them to live in light of the new covenant reality as opposed to the old covenant reality. And he's trying to show them how the new covenant reality should really not just um, encourage them in their faith, it should be the fuel for their faith, um, that it should inspire greater works of obedience, that it should inspire greater um, pursuit of holiness. And so that's where we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 12. You, f you see the writer really trying to inspire the Hebrew Christians to pursue a greater degree of holiness than they had been because, frankly, they were getting weary. They were getting tired. They were getting worn down. They were in a culture in which they were being intensely persecuted for their faith, and they found themselves thinking, man, it was a little bit easier, actually, to do it the old way. At least we weren't being persecuted in this way. And so Paul encourages them, or I say Paul, I've, I've put my cards on the table, um, who I think wrote Hebrews, but uh, the, the writer, the author of Hebrews to be Christian PC, um, he, uh, he encourages them to continue and to, to strive to endure in their pursuit after holiness and godliness, even in the midst of a culture that is constantly antagonizing them and persecuting them. And so Hebrews chapter 12, beginning verse 1, says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For that moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Final verse. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so again, the writer of Hebrews is writing to the Hebrew church who are experiencing intense persecution, all kinds of opposition, and it is beginning to wear on their walk with the Lord. It's beginning to wear on their journey, if you will. They're starting to become discouraged. They're starting to um, uh, once again follow the patterns of their forefathers, which was this, to allow the idols of the culture around them to begin to permeate the, the boundaries, the spiritual boundaries of the church, and it was beginning to change the way in which they were. It was beginning to shape them in some ways that made the writer of Hebrews deeply concerned for them. And so he writes to them, and what he does is he asks them to recall, in chapter 11, which we didn't have time to read, he asks them to recall the faith of their forefathers and how their forefathers, from Abraham to Moses to Noah to all of them, had endured through some very extreme and trying circumstances. They had kept the faith, they had endured, they had persevered, and by their faith, they had accomplished and they had done great and mighty things for God. And so he reminds them, he says, hey, don't grow weary, don't give up. Or he says, I know you're weary, but don't give up. Remember the faith of your forefathers. Remember the faith of those that went before you. Remember how they toiled and how they strived and how they worked and how they labored in the midst of an immensely trying and troubling circumstances. Remember them. But don't just look to them. Look to Jesus. Look to the one who was the founder and the perfecter of your faith, who, though the cross stood before him, he endured it, and he endured it with great joy, and he did it all for you. And so in your, in, in your struggle in the culture and the world in which you live, don't lose heart. Remember. Remember that your faith, the Christian faith, the, the journey, the walk of discipleship with Christ is not one that excuses you from trial and trouble, but by Christ and through his grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can endure the trial and trouble that you face because God is with you in Christ. So he says, remember. And the reason why he's reminding them of those people and the reason why he's pointing them back to their lineage and the reason why he even points to this imagery of discipline which I'll, I'll just take a few minutes to, to unpack, is because Hebrews, Jews that had become Christians, would have been very familiar with the, the purpose and the reason for which they were called and saved in the first place. And if you track the Old Testament, you look, whenever God redeemed the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage, you see this in Exodus chapter 19, it says that I brought you out of Egypt. Why? so that you would be a holy people. You would be a royal priesthood. You would be a people that represent me to people of, of all tribes, nations, and tongues. The Hebrew Christians that the author of Hebrews was, Hebrews was writing to would, would have remembered. Anytime they were saved, they weren't just saved from something, they were saved for something. You were saved so that you would be a holy people. They're reminded of this again in, in Leviticus chapter 19, whenever they are delivered the, the law, um, both the moral law and the ceremonial law and the social law that they were given, they're reminded the reason why the law has been given to you is so that, the reason why you were delivered, the reason why the law is given to you is so that you would be a people that reflect God's glory and goodness upon the canvas of all creation. You would be a people that reflect the perfect shalom that he is trying to weave into and work out in human history. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, I believe it is. Maybe it's 4. I didn't put it in, I didn't put it in my notes. Um, but it, it, maybe it's 4, maybe it's 6. It's an even number, and it's right there at the beginning. I'll put it this way. Um, 
in Deuteronomy after God gives the law. And he says, the reason why I'm giving you the law is so that you would obey it. And by obeying it, all the peoples of the world would look at you by your obedience and say, what a great and mighty and wise God these, this people must serve. And so he's, he's reminding, the, the author of Hebrews is reminding them of their spiritual heritage because he's essentially reminding them all that you're enduring, all that you're fighting against, all the toil, all the trouble, all the trial that you're experiencing is something that is common to the people of God. But remember, you were not saved for yourself. And so you are going to live in this world, and in this world there is going to be trouble. But you should not allow the troubles that you experience to cause you to drift away from your central purpose and function as the people of God, which is reflect his glory, to reflect his goodness upon the canvas of all creation so that people from every tribe, nation, and tongue might see and behold the goodness of the God whom you worship. So he encourages them, keep it up, don't give up. And he also encourages them to think about all the trials and the troubles that they're experiencing in regards to how you would think about discipline. And again, this isn't something that would have been foreign to them because in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, when the people of God began to deviate from their purpose for which God created them, when they allowed the idols of the, the Near Eastern culture to begin to permeate their practices, what would God do? He would discipline them, right? He would send them into exile. He would, he would do different things. He would bring his discipline to bear upon them. And so the writer of Hebrews is, is saying, hey, don't be surprised whenever bad things happen to good and godly people. And if you start deviating from the purpose for which God has called you, then there will be discipline. Even for those of us who are in Christ, there is still discipline. Because when we deviate from the purpose for which God has called us, he as a loving father wants to redirect us back into that purpose, back into the fullness of life and joy that we are called to experience by living as his people on mission in the world. And so he, he even uses the imagery of discipline to remind them, hey, all the bad things, all the stuff that you're experiencing, God is using that to purge, to refine, to remove all the impurities out of your life so that you might more fully reflect him in the culture to which you are called to be ministers and witnesses of Christ in. So he reminds them. And so I wanted to start here because I, I really just wanted to start with an exhortation because I know that as, as I listen to the past couple of sermons, and uh, by the way, well done, Drew and Paul. They were both incredible, um, I think, representations of this topic. But as I listened to the past two sermons, I even find, found myself thinking, man, just because of my own flesh and my own security and my own sin, I, I, I walk away from such sermons just feeling like, man, I'm just not holy enough. And I'm sitting there thinking, what is it going to take for me to become more holy? And if I'm not careful, and this certainly happened um, in listening to them, you know, I, I start getting engaged in a bunch of navel gazing. You know what navel gazing is? I mean, it's pretty cut and dry. You just stare down, right? You, you're, just, you're more infatuated with your belly button than you are about the things around you. That's one way to put gable, navel gazing. But, but no, it's really, it's, it's, just, it's just, you're... You're turned inward on yourself. And as I heard those messages, I started thinking, oh, holiness. Holiness, that means I've got to do this. I've got to pay more attention to my sin. I've got to repent more. I gotta, I'm going and I'm asking my wife, and I kid you not, like this was a conversation at least a couple weeks ago. I'm just like, where are my blind spots? What am I not seeing? Like, I, I don't know if I was that frustrated, but I was kind of frustrated. I'm just like, tell me. She's like, well, babe, you know, she was being nice. I'm like, don't be nice about it. Tell me. Punch me in the face. Like, I want to know. Like, I need to, I need to, I need to repent of this stuff, but I, I can't repent for that which I don't know exists. So tell me. So I, I but, if, you know, listening to those sermons, like, man, God is holy, and I am not, and yet I'm called to be holy, and how does that all work itself out? I, I don't know if you're like me at all, but the temptation and the, and the inclination that I, I began to find in my own heart was that it started to draw me inward and kind of get into that downward spiral of, trying to fix myself. And if we do that, 
if we focus more on our own personal holiness and we do that to the detriment, or which, or if we do that to the detriment of not living into the purpose for why we're even called to be holy, then we're missing the mark. We're called to be holy. First and foremost, yes, because it delights and pleases the God whom we serve, who he himself is holy. But secondly, we're called to be holy so that we might reflect his glory and goodness upon the canvas of all creation. So that the world in which we live might look upon our holiness, our God's otherness that has been imputed to us through Christ. And they might be intrigued to know more about him. And so my exhortation, my encouragement to start out is, don't allow the pursuit of holiness to become a self-centered, self-absorbed endeavor, which sounds kind of, kind of ironic, but it can become that. And if we were to just kind of zoom out and, 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 and think about some examples, it probably wouldn't be too hard to find many examples of people who are what we might consider by every moral standard holy people, but they are 100% completely disengaged from the world in which they live, and thus they are rendered completely ineffective as missionaries for God's glory. I know many of people that are focused on holiness, they're good, they're, they're righteous, they're, they're all of those things, but they have not seen a single person in their life come to know Christ. Their holiness is missing a component. It's because holiness is meant to be all about mission. And so, if you would, turn with me to John 17. Um, if you have your finger there, I, I want to I look at kind of the, the, uh, the what of holiness. I'm just going to why. Why are we even talking about this? Why, why does holiness matter when it comes to mission? Now I want to look at uh, a prayer of Jesus to his disciples and really kind of look at the what of holiness and it's where we'll spend the rest of our time and then we'll pray and then we'll leave. So as Brandon read earlier, John chapter 17, um, beginning in verse 6, of course you have Jesus who is spending the final moments of his life before his crucifixion um, with his disciples and he offers up this prayer. It's a very famous prayer. It's known as the high priestly prayer. Um, and in this prayer, we find what I think are the essential components of understanding how, how personal holiness and God's mission actually intersect with one another. And how you can't really have holiness without mission, you can't have mission without holiness, how those two things are not meant to be separated ever, but they're always meant to go together hand in hand with one another. And so Jesus, in John 17, verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have gave me out of the world. Yours, there were, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now, verse 9 is key. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. I'm going to stop right there. So Jesus begins this prayer to the Father, and he essentially lays out um, the work that he has been committed to. That he has been sent by God the Father to call this people out unto himself to, to, and we'll actually see this language used here a little bit later, to consecrate these people, to set these people apart. Another word that we would use for that is to make these people holy, to establish their otherness, if you will, from the world. That's why he came from the Father to grab these people, to set these people apart. And now he says, I have essentially done that. I have, I have put my word in them. They have believed in that word. And now I am leaving, but just as you have sent me into this world to be set apart, to be holy, to be righteous, to be different from the world, I am sending them in the same way. Father, as you have sent me, so I have sent you. We'll keep reading. Verse 12, or sorry, did I skip one? Uh, that they may be one even as we are one. Okay, verse 12. While I was with them, 
I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Sorry, Judas. And the scripture might be fulfilled. Sorry, that was a cheesy Christian joke. I apologize. Um, But now I am speaking to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'll keep reading. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Okay, so again, here's what Jesus is getting at. The Father has sent Christ into the world to, to manifest his glory, to manifest his name amongst all peoples. But the way that Jesus did that is he began by gathering these 12, later 11 disciples unto himself. And he spends three and a half years teaching them, discipling them, mentoring them, teaching them to obey all that God has commanded, right? And so Jesus essentially says, my work is complete with them. Now my prayer is that though they are being sent into the world, they would not become of the world. And to me, that statement, being sent into the world but not becoming of the world, being sent by God for the sake of mission but not ever diluting or deviating from the purpose that God has called us to, which is to be holy people, is why we're sent. We're sent to be agents and representatives of God's holiness, but we're not to lose our distinct flavor and texture, right, in the process of engaging non-Christians. So I want to just take a few minutes to, do, to, to kind of draw a, a couple of practical points out of this. Um, I think the, the crux of what Jesus is getting at here is that as Christians, we're called to be in the world, but not of it. What, therefore, does it look like to be in this world, but not of this world? What does it look like to be in but not of? What does it look like to be sent but holy, in other words? What does it look like to be a missionary but a godly one? What does it look like to be sent but sanctified? What does it look like to be um, an alien in the culture but not be completely alienated from the culture in which we live? I think there are a couple of things we can look at. Um, one thing that I noticed, and I do believe this part was in my notes. I don't know if the last 10 minutes was. But um, Jesus says, verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I think if we're going to talk about holiness and mission, we have to understand right out of the gate that being a Christian on mission does not mean that everyone is going to be your friend. It does not mean that everyone is going to like you. As a matter of fact, Jesus says the opposite. Being a Christian on mission means people are going to hate you. Thus, it's futile for us to ever try and live as Christians, holy people, on mission. It's futile for us to ever try to do that in such a way that everyone likes us. So right out of the gate, we have to deal with something that we all struggle with, which is fear of man and its approval. (laughs) It's impossible to live as a holy person, a missionary sent by God in a pagan culture and have every single person in your world like you and admire you and want to be you which is hard for us to wrestle with. I know it's certainly hard for me to wrestle with because we want to be liked. We want to be influential. We want to have friends. We want, like, we want to follow Dale Carnegie's things, right? Like how to win friends and influence people. Like that's who we want to be. But there's something about our holiness, which has certainly been covered in the first couple of sermons. There's something about our holiness 
that should be off-putting to people. And you know what it is? It's that when we actually live into our identity as holy people, we stand as a stark contrast to the values which they are pursuing, the culture in which we live is pursuing. See, a holy people, a people that are set apart, a people that have their identity secure and, and settled in God, a people who know why they're there and what they exist for, a holy people, a holy person is not going to be a person that is driven by materialism. It's not going to be a person that's driven by pragmatism or capitalism. A holy person, because we are receiving our holiness imparted to us by a holy God, um, we're set apart, is not going to be a person that is, is, is driven by the same sexual ethic, the same ideas of sexuality, right? We're not going to be driven by any of those things. And so therefore, just by being who God has called us to be, we're going to stand in stark contrast to the culture in which we live. And for many people, that's going to be offensive. Especially in the culture in which we live right, we live in right now, right? Which all you have to do to be called a bigot is to disagree. You don't actually have to be a bigot. You don't actually have to hate anybody. You just have to disagree and you can be called a bigot. And so, if there's anybody that should be familiar with this, this reality, it should be us, like, right? We, it's, the culture in which we live is going to hate us. They're going to despise us. They're going to look down upon us. They're going to turn their nose up at us, if you will, because the very things that we stand for, if we are holy, are not the values upon which the culture was built. And that can just right out of the gate come, come out as, or come across as judgment. And in reality, and I don't have time for this, in many ways it is. It is. Now, it's not us being judgmental, but we are, if we are to be a picture of God's holiness and God's righteousness to the world in which we live, and God is a holy God that is completely set apart from the world in which he has created, then absolutely, people that model themselves and reflect and image and mirror the holiness of God are going to smell a little bit like the judgment of God because that's what's coming. That's the standard by which the world is going to be judged, and guess what? They don't like it, and thus they don't like us. And so I want to I say this, and, and this is one of those things that I'm going to say, and I don't know how to tell you to work it out. Okay, so I feel bad for doing it. You can't pursue holiness and care a whole lot about hipness at the same time. Now, some of you might be like, that's funny coming from a guy with your haircut and tattoos and you like fit the textbook definition of a hipster up there. We've all got our problems, okay? Okay. <laughs> I just wear mine on my sleeves, literally. Um, but you can't, care, you can't care more about hipness than you care about holiness if you're going to be effective missionaries in this world. They put it this way. You are not more effective as a missionary the more you look like your non-believing neighbor. You're more effective as a missionary the more you look like Jesus. So we shouldn't be spending all of our time trying to find the common ground in which we can stand with our culture if we're going to be effective missionaries. This is a mistake that I made over and over and over again as a church planter and still make to this day is thinking that if I could just become more hip, more relevant, more in touch, if I could just drink the right beer or read the right books or whatever, then I'll actually be able to connect with my non-believing neighbors. They won't ever think that, they won't think that I'm a complete idiot or moron. But what Jesus tells us is, is, is to some degree, people are always going to think you're a moron. They're always going to have their problems with you. And so to try and spend all of your energy, all of your effort as a missionary to try and figure out how you can be more like the world is actually to rend your, render yourself completely unable to actually be effective as a missionary. It's the more holy we are, the more effective we become because it's, it's more in contrast we stand with the culture in which we live. It's our otherness. It's God's otherness. It's our otherness that makes us most effective as missionaries. And so again, I don't know how to tell you to work that one out other than to just like pray about it, have people speak into it. But pursuing hipness over holiness is something we certainly should not be committed to. The second thing I was going to say from this text um, 
Jesus says, uh, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So here's the, the second ingredient that I was going to say is kind of a, a, a thing for us to meditate upon. So if number one is don't pursue hipness over holiness, pursue holiness because, I mean, the world despising you is pretty much going to be inevitable. The second thing I would say is that the pursuit of holiness should not remove you from sinful environments where sin is present. Right? So Jesus says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. In other words, he's saying, I'm not, I'm not asking that you take them out of dark and sinful environments. I'm not asking that you, that you extract them and kind of create this isolated huddle, this holy huddle over here in the, in, that's separate from the culture. I'm not asking that you create um, kind of this, this distinct group of people that is distinctly separate from the world in which they live. No, no, no. He's saying, I'm actually asking God that you would strengthen them in such a way that they can go as deep as possible into the world in which they live, that they can go way deep into the darkness, but they will not lose the light that's in their heart. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. I'm just asking that you keep them from the evil one. Which means, brothers and sisters, holiness does not mean separation from the culture either. In the first point, if holiness doesn't mean capitulation towards the culture, it certainly doesn't mean separation from it either. So we have to work out this tension, this toil, this struggle of how do we go as deep as we possibly can in the world in which we live and mix it up with sinners and pagans and, and, and people that do not love Jesus and people that do not like us? How do, we, how do we live in that world, such a hostile environment, while at the same time not compromising our righteousness? And so, brothers and sisters, it's, it's this struggle to which we are called to when we talk about holiness and mission. It's, it's the struggle to not become so like the culture that we lose our distinct flair and texture and, 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 and our call and purpose as the people of God, but it's also to not become removed from the culture so as they don't actually get to see what it's like to live and follow God. We've got to be in, but not of. We've got to be deep in the world in which we live, but not affected by it. And I don't know about you, but I think that's really hard to do. Is it not? I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, like, I, I can think of recent experiences in which I'm hanging out with non-Christians, and I find myself using words I wouldn't normally use around my Christian friends. And they aren't good words, I'll put it that way. Like, why? I never use that word. Maybe I do. But... I certainly don't use that word this freely. Why am I using that word now? Am I trying to be cool? Am I trying to show that a four-letter word, Christians can do that? That's not a pastoral encouragement. I'm just sharing a bit of my own struggle here. Like I, recently, what is it? It's hard. It's hard to be in those environments where you so desperately want to fit in and you want to make Christ cool and relevant. It's hard to be holy and in the midst of the world that is so not holy. But this is the struggle. This is the tension in which we are called to live and move and be. And so my final point is that, and I think this is where I was going to spend the majority of my time. So there you go. Um, if you go back to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, I want to exhort us finally with this. So Jesus calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus calls, to be, calls us to be sent, but sanctified. Jesus calls us to live in the midst of a people that will hate us, but not allow that hatred to drive us to despair. And this is very much the struggle that the Hebrews were facing, which is why Hebrews chapter 12 was written. And I wanted, to, I wanted to just exhort us with this, that I, I think this is kind of where if we're going to pursue holiness and mission and not compromise our holiness for the sake of mission or not deviate from mission for the sake of holiness, then I think this is where we need to put the majority of our energy and our effort. 
in verse 12, or chapter 12, Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says that we should look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, I want to submit to you that you don't become more holy by trying harder. A temptation that I regularly fall into. You don't become holy by doing. We are tempted to say holiness is this list of behaviors. It's doing these things and it's staying away from those things. It's being all about that, but not being all about that. It's, it's pursuing that, but refraining from that, right? That's kind of how we will categorize holiness. That's how I started to think of holiness is like, oh, being set apart, that means that I've got to do this and I've got to not do that and I've got to live like this and I can't live like that and I've got to be concerned about not being a capitalist or a consumerist and I've got to be, like, so we start thinking about all of these categories and, and, and we start evaluating ourselves and it's the conversation that I had with Emily saying, tell me, tell me where I'm not holy, Make me holy. Tell me. Do something, right? Because I was convicted. But as I was reading Hebrews 12, I was reminded that we don't become more holy by a list of do this and don't do that. We become more holy by beholding. It's not by doing. It's by looking. It's not by striving. It's by observing. It's not by committing ourselves to a greater degree of just sheer will and grit and determination of I'm not going to be like this and I'm not going to say that and I'm not going to do this and then I'm going to go hang out with my non-Christian friends and, and I'm going to try really, really hard this time to not use a four-letter word because I don't know if that necessarily honors God. Like It's, it's not that, although don't do it. Um, it's moving out into the world in which we live with a clear and compelling picture of Christ in our hearts and minds. It's beholding the one who endured the cross. It's beholding our founder and our perfecter of faith. It's, it's beholding the one who is seated at the right hand of the God. It's beholding the one who has already called you holy before you ever were. It's more about being than it is about doing. It's more about resting than it is about toiling. And I'm firmly convinced that what the world needs most out of the Christian church is not a bunch of people that are pursuing moral imperatives. But the world needs to see a group of people that are so captivated by the beauty and the glory of Jesus that it has literally changed how we view everything else in our lives. It's changed how we view money. Therefore, when we have conversations about money, it's going to sound a little different. It's changed how we view sex. Therefore, when we talk about sex, it's going to sound different. It's changed how we view our family. Therefore, when we talk about family, it's going to look different. It's changed all of that. And what's changed it? The picture that we have of Christ in our hearts, who he is, what he has done for us, how he has loved us, how he has saved us, to use Old Testament imagery, how he has taken us out of Egypt and brought us into the promised land. It's recalling, it's remembering, it's reflecting, it's rejoicing. It's more contemplative than it is active. Now I know some of you are like, Whew. then I can rest. And to some degree, you certainly can. But I want to say this. Faith in Christ, and this is another intent of the author of Hebrews, I believe. Faith in Christ is never meant to relax your commitment to holiness. If anything, it's meant to intensify it. But the means by which you pursue holiness, I'm convinced, is not through checklists. It's not through comparisons. It's not through self-flogging and condemnation. It's by looking at the one who has, who has received your punishment for sin and has removed condemnation from you. It's by being so enamored by the beauty of Christ that you want to be like him and you devote your life to being like Jesus. And in devoting your life to being like Jesus, you find yourself more and more in certain environments and certain situations looking less and less like those that don't know him. And in looking less and li less like those that don't know him, they're actually getting for the first time a glimpse 
of what it means to be someone who is devoted to God. And it causes intrigue, and it causes questions. And, and I was just sharing on the phone with a friend of mine that, you know, um, in a conversation, we, you know, we lived in, in, in Reno for a bit before we were here, and, and uh, hanging out with, with a, a group of guys, and we're hanging out with some non-Christians. And uh, these non-Christians were deeply intrigued by the way that us men treated, talked about our wives and talked about our kids. And it was through us being completely other and different in the way that we talked about our wives and, and talked about our kids that actually gave an open door for a conversation about Jesus. Well, why do you do that? Well, it's because of this. It wasn't because we were drinking IPAs and dropping F-bombs. Again, not that I would say you should do that. It's because we had something that they didn't have. And that something to some people is the stench of death and they're going to hate you for it. But to others whom God has prepared for himself, it's going to be the aroma of life and they're going to come to Christ because of it. So please, sojourn. As you move out into the heights and in greater Houston and you live lives following and pursuing Jesus, my great encouragement to you would be to pursue holiness, absolutely. But to pursue holiness by looking to Christ and falling more deeply in love with Him. To put yourself in situations and environments in which you can be more aware of who Jesus is and what He's done through Sunday gatherings, through neighborhood parishes, through conversations with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I used to say this all the time, and again, it used to frustrate some of you because come from different church backgrounds. I used to say, I don't want to be told the right way to live my life. I want to be reminded of the goodness of God first and foremost before you ever tell me what to do. It would frustrate some because you'd be like, wait, well, if you're caught up in something, I need to tell you to knock it off. Yeah, tell me to knock it off. But I want to be reminded into obedience, not browbeaten or browbeaten into obedience. I don't know about you. But put yourselves in environments where you can be reminded of the goodness and the grace and the the glory of God. And from there, move out into the world with great confidence that you're being conformed into the image of Christ. Let me pray.